For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. A look at the issues surrounding the potential half-cent sales tax increase in Tucson. Hear about a local man's working tour across the United States. Chris DeShiel considers the various stories behind the making of Andy Warhol's 1968 film, Lonesome Cowboys. And meet a Native American craftsman who's continuing his cultural traditions in a unique way. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucson voters are in the last days of casting ballots in the city's special election to increase the sales tax by a half cent. Joining me now to talk about the issues surrounding this is Andrea Kelly. Hi, Mark. Well, tell us, uh, what exactly is on this ballot? So it's a half cent sales tax increase. That's the question voters are being asked. Do you want to raise the sales tax by a half a cent within the city of Tucson or keep it the same? If voters decide to raise that sales tax, it would last five years. It's a temporary sales tax increase of five years. If after that five years, the city wants to continue that sales tax increase, it would have to go back to voters again for another approval. And essentially, the money will be used for police and fire equipment and also to repair city streets. And again, it's only inside the city of Tucson. Why is the city asking for money in this way? It says that it doesn't have enough money otherwise. So um, some of that can be attributed to state budget cuts of city revenues that have been happening year after year after year when the state legislature and governor craft the state budget. They've been pulling money that is supposed to go to cities and towns to pay for roads and using it on other state services instead of sending it back to those cities and towns. Um, And then the city just says it's behind on spending of the maintenance items like new police cars, new fire station, more bulletproof vests for officers. It's been running a lean budget over the years and just hasn't had the extra money for these things that it says are necessary. Well, what are some of the pros and cons that have evolved as the conversation about this has continued? The two main political groups in Pima County, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, have each taken a stance on it, and they've taken opposite stances. So I interviewed both of them, and I'm going to let them speak for themselves here a little bit. Uh, Pima County Democrats are supporting it. This is Joe Holt, the chairwoman. The Pima County Democratic Party supports Proposition 101 largely because our police and our firefighters are asking for that. Uh, The Tucson Metro Chamber, the uh, Visit Tucson Tourism Office supports it. It seems like it's definitely the right thing to do. Essentially, she says the city has no other way of coming up with the money to pay for these critical needs. Pima County Republicans are against the increase. I interviewed David Eppiheimer. He's the chairman of that party. The uh, Pima County Republican Party opposes the sales tax increase, uh, largely on principle in that we feel it's a budgetary issue. Uh, We support police and fire and roads. 
but we believe that uh, these are essential services of the city and they should be taken care of in the budget first uh, and not uh, put on the back burner and then go to the taxpayers for a, a sales tax increase to fund. So he says the reason there's no other way to pay for these things is the city's been doing poor money management and not planning ahead for these expenses. I asked each of them to give us a little more than just for it and against it, um, a little deeper into their convictions on it. And when I asked Joe Holt to explain why a temporary sales tax is better, if the city needs the money, doesn't it need it longer? That's one of the questions I asked her. Here's her answer. I think that uh, the city council was, was thinking in terms of being able to assess what has been done uh, over that period of time, and also to not ask the voters to carry that heavy of a load uh, for as in terms of a permanent increase. Uh, there need to be other mechanisms, and they're looking into that. And with David Eppiheimer, again the Republican Party chairman in Pima County, who opposes the sales tax increase, he suggested that the city should have the money in the budget to pay for these services. So I asked where should it find that extra money? We feel that the mayor and council just uh, does not manage the funds that come in uh, on the current tax basis. Uh, they gave uh, bonuses to their city employees at the end of last year because they had money left over. Uh, and now they're coming to the taxpayers and saying, what, we can't afford for roads, police, and fire. So he says the money's there, it's just not being spent wisely. Voters have until Tuesday to decide which of those approaches resonate more with them. Um, let's remind people how they can vote. This election is being conducted entirely by mail, so any registered voter who lives in Tucson should have received a ballot in the mail, and they hopefully have thought about what they want to do, voted, and sent their ballot back. If you still have a ballot in your household and you're still trying to think about how to vote or you just haven't sent it in yet, the best thing to do at this point is to plan to drop it off in person on election day at one of seven sites throughout the city. That's because city officials say it could take too long to get there via mail. If you drop it in the mail this weekend, you might miss that deadline. It does have to be in the city's hands by 7 p.m. Tuesday, May 16th. Those voter locations are all listed on the website. You can find it at news.azpm.org. And of course, we'll be reporting on the results next week. Thank you for your time, Andrea. You're welcome. Many people daydream about visiting all 50 states. In the last year, Tucson resident Juan Bayardo did just that, plus the District of Columbia. And he funded the journey using his skills as a handyman, finding jobs along the way. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with Bayardo about his travels. And let's begin with how this all started. You just got an idea someday that you wanted to travel to all 50 states and get jobs in each of them? Well, my idea primarily was to travel all 50 states because I've always wanted to see the country. And since uh, I knew it would be an expensive endeavor, the idea of working in all 50 states was my secondary idea. Originally, you left in May of 2016, and your goal was to be back for the holidays in December of 2016, right? That's what I thought. And what happened? Well, a lot of things went the way I thought they would, and uh, some of them didn't, which was the time frame. Finding work was not timely sometimes it would take me a day or two which was a good week and sometimes it would take up to five or six days to find the job 
Juan, you visited all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, and you were able to find gigs in 48 of those. What happened in the other three? Not that 48 is not impressive. Well, because I was self-funded and limited in resources, I can only spend an X amount of time in each location. And nine grueling frozen days in South Dakota, I was not able to come up with a job there. I spent eight days in the state of Oregon, freezing rain and snow, and and also in Alaska. I spent six days in Alaska, in Anchorage, and I wasn't able to find any work there. I, I had no way of knowing how much money I was actually going to make, nor did I know exactly how many days it was going to take. I kind of winged it that way, and I think that's what made it a journey. It was not a vacation, and that's what I had to keep reminding myself. Every time I got down or felt homesick, I kept saying, this is not a vacation. This is a book research project, which is, I hope is the end result of the whole journey is to write a book about it uh, with a lot more detail. Uh, what I did underestimate is the, the money I would make and how expensive it would actually be to be on the road. It really became a survival. It became a necessity for me to get whatever job I can get in order to be able just to knock it off the list and to move forward. So there was many times where I knew I was being underpaid, but I wasn't in the position to negotiate a bargain because I was just there to record a job and move forward. What would you say is the most positive thing about this adventure? It was what I thought it would be a working tour, but it became really a people meeting tour. And that's what made it so memorable and successful was that as soon as people found out what I was doing, whether it was in Florida or in Maine or Minnesota, wherever I went, people just embraced what I was doing and they felt a need and a desire to help me. Anybody stand out? Anybody you're going to see again? Well, um, there was a couple, the Russell family in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who, who took me in for nine days while I worked on their cabinets. And it was right about the fall. And the last day I was there, um, her name Stacy said, did you bring any winter clothes? And I said, I didn't. And she said, you're not going to be home by Christmas. You know that? I said, I know. So she picked up the phone. And by the end of the day, she had collected jackets, sweaters, long underwear, snow boots, gloves. They filled up my truck with with food from their pantry and my tank with gas because they wanted to make sure that I was warm and safe. And that for me, for people I didn't know the week before and the way they embraced me and helped me, it just really made me feel so humbled and uh, grateful that people like that exist in all 50 states. And you're staying in touch with them still? Still now they're my friends or family. And you mentioned the cold in South Dakota and Alaska. Was that one of your biggest challenges or negative aspects of this whole trip? I, I could tell you that the weather, I could I could weather the weather, <laughs> the extreme cold, the extreme heat that I experienced. But the toughest thing was the mental downtime. There was nothing to do for days on end and there was no money to do anything. I was just sitting in my truck sit at the library, sit at the truck stop, sit at the park, just waiting for the phone to ring or a job to pop up. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing to do. And that was nerve wracking at times because uh, I felt that's when I probably felt the most isolated and, and most homesick when, when I just uh, had that challenge of the downtime, which I experienced 
a lot of it must have felt sort of like being homeless in a different community each time would that be a fair analogy it was like if you went to work in the morning and didn't come back for a year because even when i worked it wasn't like i could go home i just had to go to the truck stop uh, which was almost became my home away from home because i ran out of money eight, 18 states in and that's when it really became a journey it's where it really became a survival tour I had to decide at that point whether I was going to just come back home or I was going to stop and make decisions, which really made me or break me as a person. Because at that, from that point forward, I couldn't afford to camp. I couldn't afford to rent any rooms and I couldn't afford to eat three times a day. So those are like the sacrifices I had to make. Uh, I slept 189 nights in my car and, and those are the things that I knew were going to test me as a person. I had several people uh, want to collect fundraisers for me or start fundraisers before I left to help me with the cost, but I felt that would defeat the purpose of working my way through the country. Knowing what you know now about the challenges, the cold, the loneliness, all the, the hunger, the issues you had, would you do it all over again? Or do you think it's time to take a break? I, I don't think I would do it exactly the same again because at 55, I don't think I could take any more sleepless nights in two-degree weather. But I think that the fascinating part about meeting people and and helping people, I, that will never go away. I'll always have that desire. What's it like to be back home? It's great. I, I could tell you one thing. After traveling all 50 states, Tucson is not a bad place to live. It's awesome. Tony Paniagua talked with Juan Bayardo. You can find a link on the Arizona Spotlight page to see photos that document Bayardo's epic American road trip. Since it was built in 1939 to provide sets for the historical melodrama Arizona, Old Tucson Studios has become one of the most frequently filmed locations in movie history. And not just for Westerns. Sharp-eyed fans can spot Old Tucson in movies ranging from The Miniskirt Mob to Death Wish to Barbra Streisand's remake of A Star is Born and from the notorious giant rabbit movie Night of the Lepus to Revenge of the Nerds. Next, film essayist Christy Scheele looks back at one of the most unusual films ever shot at Old Tucson Studios, now practically an urban legend. It almost seems like it barely happened at all. I couldn't help but do a double take when I came across a paragraph in a book that I'd bought while visiting Old Tucson Studios. It's called Location Filming in Arizona by Lily DeBarbieri. It seems that Andy Warhol had started to make a film at Old Tucson in January of 1968, but was kicked out because of inappropriate behavior. According to the book, management found out on the first day of shooting that the film would feature a nude cast on motorcycles. The tourists were about to be admitted at 8 o'clock a.m. as usual, so the manager of Old Tucson, Bob Shelton, had Warhol move out of public view. Then a further, unspecified infraction caused Warhol to be ejected. He and his crew ended up renting a ranch in Oracle to finish the movie. Now, I love imagining a studio assistant running into Shelton's office yelling in panic, Boss, the customers are about to come in, but there are nude bikers everywhere. What do we do? 
A little bit of research, however, reveals that the reality wasn't quite as colorful as the fantasy. Warhol is widely considered a very important artist now, but in 1968 he was still controversial. He was primarily famous for his paintings and art objects. His experimental films of the mid-60s are of some interest. By 1968, he had turned his attention to making exploitation films. He and his principal assistant, Paul Morrissey, decided to go to Arizona and make a Western. And I have to assume that the management of Old Tucson had only a vague idea of who Andy Warhol was. Management was told that the movie was called Romeo and Juliet, clearly just an attempt to throw them off. We tend to think of the 60s as all about protesters and hippies and free love, but the vast majority of the country was still pretty conservative. And Arizona, which was Goldwater country, even more so. The local Tucson media got wind of the Warhol project, and about 150 curious onlookers had gathered by the time Warhol started the shoot. What they saw were some guys in Western outfits riding horses. But this wasn't really a Western, or even a parody of one. These were gay men hanging around talking and camping it up. There was one actress, Viva, the former Vogue model turned Warhol star, playing a nymphomaniac, which reportedly was the same as playing herself. Later during the shoot, the local grips, electricians, and set builders formed a kind of vigilante group that approached the crew, called them perverts, and told them to get out. Hollywood star Robert Taylor, appearing in the TV series The High Chaparral, which was being filmed elsewhere on the lot, watched while he was on a break, scowling at the filmmaker's antics. This was a year before the Stonewall Riots, There was no gay rights movement or any sympathy in the American mainstream for gay people at that time. The word gay, with its current meaning, hardly existed yet. A production featuring a drag queen in the role of the town sheriff was bound to encounter a hostile reaction at a studio famous for being one of John Wayne's favorite locations. The evidence is unclear on whether they were ordered to leave or if Warhol just decided he'd had enough, but he moved his production to Rancho Linda Vista in Oracle after one day of filming. Gawking locals turned out at that location as well, and a rape scene caused one outraged bystander to call the police. The county sheriff, Walden Burr, drove onto the ranch to see what was up and returned each day following, presumably hoping to catch the filmmakers in a crime. Even the FBI got into the act, opening a file on Warhol and considering charges of transporting obscene material across state lines. This is a rather bleak glimpse into the true atmosphere of 1968 America. Warhol wasn't at all a part of the political unrest of that year, but a reaction had already set in, not just against the anti-war movement, but the counterculture, with its drugs and music and defiance of authority. It's a wonder they didn't try to bust the crew for drugs, since everybody in the movie was stoned pretty much all the time. In any case, after a five-day shoot and some more ugly incidents with the locals, Warhol and his followers returned to New York. The actual title of the film is Lonesome Cowboys, I watched it so that you don't have to, and I wish I could report that it's any good. It's awful. Even making allowances for Warhol's use of extreme rough cuts, beeps from the sound equipment, and the wind whistling on the microphone, all you see is a group of bad actors desperately trying to improvise dialogue and failing. There is a scene or two that might evoke a few laughs, but out of an hour and 45 minutes running time, that's not enough. My feeling is that taken out of the Manhattan environment and plunked down into the Old West with no coherent ideas to go with, 
What could be compelling in some of Warhol's other films became embarrassing here. Incidentally, there are no naked bikers in the film. I suspect that was someone's poor memory embellishing things to make a good story. As it is, the entire incident seems less humorous than a reflection of what was a very dark time. 1968 was a bad year. Five months after the Tucson trip, while Lonesome Cowboys was being edited, and a couple days before Robert Kennedy was killed in L.A., Andy Warhol was shot in his New York studio by a mentally ill person. He survived, living another 19 years, but by all accounts, he was never quite the same again. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Last week on this show, I visited a new permanent exhibit at the Arizona State Museum called Woven Through Time. It celebrates Southwestern Native American art and the history of basket making and other woven crafts. The museum held a Native Crafts Fair and invited artists from across the Southwest to demonstrate and share their traditions. My colleague, Nancy Montoya, and I visited, and we met a very interesting artist who was weaving a basket while we spoke. My name is um, Sheldon Nunez Velarde, and I'm from the Hickory Apache um, Nation in northern New Mexico. My um, father's from the Tono Autumn Reservation here in Sa- uh, San Javier. Yeah, so I have family here. Can you give us some contrast between the scene that you have in New Mexico right now and what you see in Tucson? I'm fairly new to the basket scene. I'm, in, I'm mainly a potter. So this is like eight years that I'm learning now, basketry. So, and I was um, like surprised because the museum wanted a piece of my baskets in the museum. So I have a, a basket on exhibit here for the opening. Well, congratulations. That's Thank great. you. As a craftsperson, how does the experience of potting and weaving, how is that different? Um, give us an idea of what you get out of each. <laughs> the basket takes forever, but pottery, I can whip those out like crazy. And it was funny when we were getting ready for the show, I told my mom, I'm used to lugging boxes and boxes of pots around. For this one, I just had one little one bag, and that was it. So. <laughs> Are you telling a story? Yeah. With your with your basket here, can you describe this is it? a turtle. This is going to be a turtle. Um, it's not a, your typical hickory Apache design, but I like turtles, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm gonna finish the black, then I'm gonna start the tail, and the head's gonna be here, and the feet on both sides, and it's gonna go. It's gonna be a pretty big piece. It's gonna continue about probably 12 inches more. What would you say about your reflections on how this, uh, how weaving and pottery is part of your culture? Why is it important for you to carry on these traditions? Is it just because you love the art, or is there more to it than that for you? Do you feel a mission? I help bring back the pottery tradition on my reservation, and um, I noticed no nobody was making baskets, so. In our culture, men are not supposed to make baskets, but I had to go beyond that taboo and um, get permission from the the people left, the elders. And they granted me permission partly because I do all the other crafts from my tribe. So, so you had already kind of established yes, yourself yeah, as a craftsperson. So then they let me, let me do baskets. Were you nervous before you uh, talked to the elders about this? Did it take a while to build up the courage? <laughs> no, because... Um, when my grandmothers were alive, I had asked them if I could make baskets. And one of the grandmothers said no. 
and I asked her, and she was adamant. But they passed away, and it just—I just wanted to keep it going. So I asked the current people, and they eventually gave me permission. As you're doing your craft, what goes through your mind about maybe when somebody else a hundred years ago was was doing the weaving? Do you ever think about that? Uh, not necessarily the like the, what I. I just am proud that I'm bringing. I'm still preserving it. So, yeah. Why is that important? Because that's what our tribal identity is. It's a hickory a basket, and that's what we're known for. And in Spanish, that hickory means little basket. So that's we have the Spanish um, terms that they gave us, so we still use it. Do you feel that um, your craft is still respected in the world we live in today? I noticed, like, I do a lot of the, the arts, Indian arts and crafts um, shows all over the country, and um, I was telling my mom, like, the jewelry and the paintings and pottery, it's a, there's a lot of artists, but when you look at the basketry, it's just a little group. It's like, even here, this is a small group, and it, I just feel um, happy that I'm a part of this group. <laughs> and I've seen some of these um, basket makers at other events, so, and it's always the same one, so it's a small, close-knit community. Thank you, Sheldon. Mm -hmm. Nancy Montoya and I spoke with potter and basket weaver Sheldon Nunez Velarde at a weekend arts fair hosted by the Arizona State Museum in conjunction with their exhibit, Woven Through Time, American Treasures of Native Basketry and Fiber Art. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. <laughs>